0: Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. On July the 28th, 1914, Austria-Hungary declared war on Serbia. And this began a series of cascading events that eventually led to the death of some 17 million soldiers and civilians in World War I. But Austria-Hungary's declaration of war on Serbia was actually set in motion exactly one month before July the 28th, on June the 28th, 1914, where Franz Ferdinand, who was the heir to the Austrian and Hungarian throne, was visiting Sarajevo with his wife. And as they were leaving Sarajevo's city hall on that day, on June the 28th, they were both fatally shot as they sat in their car, by a 19-year-old Serbian nationalist named Gavrilo Princip. But the amazing thing is that this assassination of Franz Ferdinand and his wife that triggered the beginning of World War I would never have happened except that the driver of the car that Franz Ferdinand and his wife were sitting in took a wrong turn leaving City Hall. And when the driver realized that he'd taken a wrong turn, he slowed to a stop right in front of a general store where Princip had situated himself. I mean, just imagine the entire course of world history was turning with the wheels of that car turning in the wrong direction. Was it just bad luck, blind fate, random chance that that car turned in the wrong direction? The Bible would tell us that nothing, absolutely nothing happens by luck, blind fate, or random chance. On the contrary, the Bible tells us that everything happens according to plan, specifically according to God's plan, if I can get that thing to work, specifically according to God's plan who guides and governs all things by his providence. This truth of God's providence is taught throughout the scriptures, but divine providence is especially evident and highlighted in the events of Joseph's life with his brother's. We see Joseph is sold to this passing caravan by his brothers and ends up in Egypt where he interprets some dreams that are given to Pharaoh of this coming famine. And because Joseph interprets these dreams, he is exalted to the second highest position in all of Egypt and he implements this plan to store grain for the people during the famine when it becomes severe and when the famine does become severe all of the nations are coming to Egypt to buy food and grain including Joseph's brothers who had sold him long ago and they don't recognize him and when Joseph first encounters his brothers in Egypt he does not reveal himself to them but later he does reveal himself in Genesis chapter 45 verses 3 through 13 so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. This is not actually part of the Gospel According to Genesis series. Uh, Bob will eventually reach this chapter, but all of you will forget what I've said this morning by the time he gets to Genesis 45. He's only in Genesis 11 right now. So we're going to be looking at Genesis 45, 3-13 as we consider the doctrine of God's providence and how everything unfolds according to plan. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, you can open them to Genesis 45. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you should be able to locate a Bible, a paperback Bible, underneath one of the seats in front of you. Uh, Our text is on page 23 of those paperback Bibles. If you do not own a Bible, we would love for you to take that Bible home with you today. We would love for you to receive that as our gift to you. But Genesis 45, if you found that and you're able, let's stand for the reading of God's word. Again, beginning in Genesis 45, verse 3. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be dismayed or distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt, come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children, and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen, hurry and bring my father down here. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord abides forever. You can be seated. Again, in considering the doctrine of God's providence and how all things unfold according to plan, we need to see first that the doctrine of God's providence informs us of important truths the doctrine of God's providence informs us of important truths and the first important truth that the doctrine of God's providence informs us of is that God not only created the entire world but he continues to sustain and govern the world by his power and by his wisdom our God is not a remote distant God as if he just established a set um laws to govern the universe and then winds up the universe and leaves it to run on its own with no revelation, no intervention in the course of human history and no involvement. Some of you might recognize that this view that I've just described is known as deism, this distant and remote God who created but doesn't make himself known and is no longer involved in the affairs of human history. And while we as Christians rightly reject deism theologically, it's still possible for us to adopt it functionally, thinking that things like world events, national elections, the outbreak of wars or pandemics, scientific discoveries, technological advances, weather catastrophes, and other kinds of things, even like sporting events, are not governed by the Lord, that these things occur independently of our God. God. But our God is not a mere observer of history. The truth is that at every moment, our God is governing and guiding all things by his providence. You know, people will say to me sometimes, that God doesn't care about who wins sports games. And that might be true. But every ball bounces in exact accordance with his providence. He is governing and guiding all. All things. Question twenty seven of the Heidelberg Catechism uh, puts it well. It says, Providence is the almighty and ever present power of God, by which he upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things in fact come to us not by chance but from his fatherly hand. And thinking about these words leads us to the second important truth that the doctrine of God's providence informs us of, and that is that God's providential rule does not extend only to those things that we would recognize as major events, but extends even to those things that we would think appear trivial. Notice this language of the catechism, leaf and blade, food and drink, sunshine and warmth, All of these things are under God's providential control. And Jesus confirms this for us in Matthew chapter 10, verse 29, where he says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Seemingly trivial things. Two sparrows sold for a penny. And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father. Even the rising and the falling and the flying of small birds are under his providential control. We're also told in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33, that the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. In other words, the roll of the dice is not left to luck or to blind fate or to random chance, but every roll of the dice is under the providential control of our God. Now, of course, the reality is we're not able to distinguish between a major event and a minor event anyway just by looking at it. I mean, was that wrong turn in Sarajevo by that drive a mi- by that driver a minor event? I mean, it's been said that you can't understand the world today if you don't understand what happened in World War II. And you can't understand World War II unless you understand what happened in World War I. And World War I doesn't happen without that driver making a wrong turn. So is that just a minor event? And think about that caravan that was passing by Joseph and his brothers. That exact time in that exact place where they sold him i mean just consider if that caravan is not passing by at that exact time and that place joseph never ends up in egypt and if joseph never ends up in egypt pharaoh's dreams are never interpreted and if pharaoh's dreams are never interpreted people all over the world are dying from a famine and if people are dying of starvation from a famine that includes people in the land of canaan that includes joseph's family which would include judah his brother and if judah dies of a famine There's no King David who descended from the line of Judah. And if there's no King David, there's no son of David. And if there's no son of David, there's no Jesus. And if there's no Jesus, there's no atonement. There's no resurrection. There's no salvation. The entire plan of God's redemption was riding on the backs of those camels that were passing Joseph and his brothers. That's divine providence. But not only was God's plan of redemption riding on the backs of those camels, it was also riding on the actions of Joseph's brother, which reminds us of a third important truth that the doctrine of God's providence informs us of. And that is that God's providence does not violate our free decisions, our choices, or our actions. But instead, God's providence works through these free choices, decisions, and actions to bring about his plan. We notice that this is Joseph's own understanding of events. Even in our text, where Joseph says to his brothers in verse 4, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And then he immediately adds in verse 5, And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here, for God sent me before you. So who sent Joseph to Egypt? Was it God, or was it his brothers? Well, according to the doctrine of God's providence, the answer to that question is, Yes. Yes. Robert Rothwell explains it this way. He says, God is not a grand puppet master pulling all the strings in such a way that our decisions are not truly ours, that our motivations don't matter, and that we have no real impact on the course of history. The Lord works in and through our decisions, actions, and motivations in such a way that they remain our decisions, actions, and motivations, while nevertheless working toward the fulfillment of God's purposes. Theologians call this the doctrine of concurrence. There's a flowing together of God's will and his plan and the free human choices, decisions, and actions that are moving God's plan forward nevertheless. So there's countless decisions and details that are converging every moment of every day. That are moving God's plan forward. And that plan envelops the free choices, decisions, and actions of people. But the life of Joseph in Egypt, as well as our own lives, teach us a second truth. And that is that the course of God's providence involves us in significant troubles. The course of God's providence involves us in significant troubles. You know, just acknowledging these important truths of God's, prov- of God's providence will not protect us from the effects of the fall, and they will not prevent us from experiencing these significant troubles. And many of these significant troubles will come in the form of physical and emotional suffering. God's providence involves us in physical and emotional suffering. I mean, just consider what happened to Joseph he is sold to this passing caravan against his will. He ends up being a slave in Egypt. And then he rises to prominence, remember, in Potiphar's house. And then he's falsely accused, accused of sexual assault while in Potiphar's house by Potiphar's wife. And then he ends up in jail. But this kind of providential suffering that we read about in the life of Joseph is hardly limited to Joseph in the Scriptures. Job experiences extreme forms of physical and emotional suffering. The Apostle Paul endures severe persecutions, in the plural, severe persecutions and physical and emotional suffering. And then there's Jesus, who suffers the agony of Gethsemane and the shame of the cross as the most extreme form of suffering that's beyond our imagination. But the significant troubles of God's providence can also come in the form of waiting, and we see this often in Scripture as well. Waiting on God to act, waiting on God's timing, waiting on the fulfillment of God's promises. Waiting is a prominent theme in Scripture. Consider that Abraham had to wait 25 years for the arrival of Isaac after the Lord said that he would have a child by his wife, Sarah. 25 years. That's a long time. And Moses waited even longer after he fled Egypt. He was a shepherd, shepherding a flock in the land of Midian for 40 years before the Lord called him back to confront Pharaoh. And the entire people of Israel waited for over 700 years for the words of the prophet Isaiah to come to pass that a Messiah would be born to them. It was over 700 years later when Jesus the Messiah arrived in Bethlehem. Of course, as we think about physical and emotional suffering and waiting, we know that these are often combined. (laughs) There's the waiting for the relief of suffering. We see this in Joseph's story as well. He has to wait in prison for years before he is released. Think of King David who was hounded by King Saul for years before he ascended the throne of Israel. And again, think of the nation as a whole who waited suffering in bondage in Egypt for over 400 years Before the Exodus. But we all know we don't have to go to the pages of Scripture to know that the course of God's providence involves us in significant troubles because we ourselves and our loved ones providentially suffer from chronic illnesses, from reoccurring pain and sickness, from cancer, depression, and anxiety and the deterioration of age and memory loss and dementia and dementia. And we grieve over the loss, the death of parents, of siblings, and sometimes even our own children. There's job losses and financial hardship, multiple miscarriages, waiting for a spouse, waiting for a child, waiting for a job, waiting for that unhealthy and abusive marriage to get better waiting to be released from forms of addiction, waiting for prodigal sons and daughters to come back home, to come back to the faith, waiting for injustices and wrongs to be righted. And sometimes the things that we're waiting for, that we're suffering through, never end. We never experience deliverance from those things that we're awaiting deliverance from. Consider John the Baptist, who was jailed for preaching the truth in righteousness. And instead of God's hand guiding events toward John the Baptist's release, he is providentially beheaded in prison at the request of an exotic dancer and her mother. Why do things like that happen? Why is there so much sin and evil and trouble and suffering and waiting allowed in this world? Well, we know Satan is active, right? We know that. Satan is real and he's active and he's behind many of these things. And we know that God is not the author of evil. We insist that God is not the author of evil, but we also declare that he is governing and guiding all things by his providence. So he allows this sin and evil and trouble and waiting and suffering. And it sure seems like he allows an awful lot of it. You know, if we're honest with ourselves, the course of God's providence just simply baffles us. We don't get it. We don't know what he's doing a lot of the time. To use the words of Paul in Romans chapter 11, verse 33, his ways are inscrutable. We just don't get it. So in light of these realities, is there any encouragement, any comfort for us in the doctrine of God's providence? And the answer to that question is yes. There is encouragement and comfort for us. Because there's a reason, there's a purpose, and there's an objective for everything appointed in God's providence. And the objective of God's providence invites us to heartfelt trust. The objective of God's providence invites us to heartfelt trust. Everything happens for a reason. Right? People say this all the time. Christians and non-Christians say this all the time. Everything happens for a reason. But let's remember that that's not true if everything happens by luck, impersonal fate, or random chance? How can impersonal forces have a reason for anything? But the doctrine of God's providence assures us that everything does happen for a reason. It happens for God's reason. But we can say more than that. The doctrine of God's providence assures us that everything happens for a good reason for God's people. Everything happens for a good reason for God's people. That's not the same as saying that everything that happens is good, right? Some things are sinful and evil. And the fact that God uses those things doesn't make them not sinful and not evil. It was sinful what Joseph's brothers did to him. But God takes those sinful things and uses them for a good reason. He allows them for a good reason. This is really what these wonderful words of Romans chapter 8, verse 28 remind us of. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. How many things? All things. Work together for what? For good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And we actually see this in the events of Joseph's life and we hear it in his words in our text in verse 5 when he says, God sent me before you, to preserve life. And then he says in verse seven, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. Everything that Joseph endured led to life and salvation in the end. You know, sometimes we have a tendency to avoid the language of luck as Christians. But because we talk about good luck and bad luck, we'll substitute that for providence. We'll talk about good providence and bad providence. But for the Christian, there is no such a thing as bad providence. There's good providence. No bad providence. But there is hard providence. And again, I don't need to tell you that hard providence is quite common. But with good reason. But what could possibly be good reasons for some of the hard providences that people experience. Well, I don't pretend to know the answer to all of that, but trouble, hardship, suffering, and waiting, these are often the tools that God uses to produce certain things in us, to pry our hands loose from the blessings he gives, to find our true blessing in him above all of these things. And he works in our hearts things like humility and endurance and steadfastness and compassion for others. And he destroys in our hearts our sense of self-reliance and self-righteousness and pride and our idolatry. He roots out sin from our hearts by using hard providences when we avail ourselves to him. Paul Tripp says it this way. He says, while we tend to be intolerant of hardship and difficulty, God is intolerant of sin. And so he uses hard things to deliver us from it. So friends, don't equate hard with bad. And don't do the opposite either. Don't equate easy with good. Oftentimes, hard is good. Now acknowledging that doesn't mean that hard isn't hard anymore. Hard is hard, but hard is good. Consider what Joel Beakey writes. Joel Beakey says, Imagine for a moment that everything in your life went your way. You never faced adversity. What would you be like? I know what I would be like. I'd be a spoiled, immature, self-centered, proud sinner who only believed in myself. Without affliction, I would never be a sin hater, a Christ lover, and a holiness pursuer. I know that's true for me as well. Now, we might want warmth and and sunshine all of the time, right? A life with no storms, no rain, no trouble. But do you know what you call a place where it's sunny all the time and it never, ever rains? It's called a desert. Nothing grows there, and there's no life there. And so God in his providence allows suffering and waiting for our good. And that's why the psalmist could say in Psalm 119, verse 71, it was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. It was good for me that I was afflicted. So providence is often hard, but it's good. And it's good because our God is good. And that calls for heartfelt trust. A heartfelt trust that is well expressed, again, by the Heidelberg Catechism, this time in answer number 26. The Catechism says... I trust him so much that I do not doubt he will provide whatever I need for body and soul and he will turn to my good whatever adversity he sends me in this sad world. He is able to do this because he is almighty God. He desires to do this because he is a faithful father. This kind of heartfelt trust is also expressed by a guy by the name of Obadiah Sedgwick. Obadiah Sedgwick was actually a member of the Westminster Assembly. So he helped craft our Westminster Confession and our Westminster Catechisms. He wrote in the 1600s, I may lack a thing which is good, but not which is good for me. Let that sink in. I may lack a thing which is good, but not which is good for me. That's trust. And so the reality of God's providence does not mean that we're insulated from hardship and trouble, and suffering, and waiting, and living with unfulfilled desires. Living for years with unfulfilled desires. Maybe living our entire lives with unfulfilled desires. It doesn't mean that we're insulated from that. But what it does mean that everything that happens in your life is happening according to plan. According to a plan that is governed and guided by the hand of infinite wisdom and love for you. And his purposes are always good, and his timing is always perfect. Well, yeah, sure, for Joseph and his brothers, but what about for me? How can I know that that's true for me? How can you know that that's true for you, especially when you're in the midst of the confusion, when you're in the midst of suffering and waiting, and you don't know how it's going to turn out? And you don't know how it's going to turn out. You don't know if it's going to turn out like it does for Joseph and his brothers or if it turns out like it's going to be for John the Baptist. You don't know how it's going to turn out. All you know is that the goodness and love and wisdom of God is not coming into focus the way it does for Joseph and his brothers here in Genesis chapter 45 where they can see the threads coming together, where Joseph can even say in verse 12 near the end of our passage, and now your eyes see. Well, what about when your eyes can't see? Well, that's when you need to look to the cross and to the resurrection. Because the cross and the resurrection are the clearest proof of the goodness of God's providence, His wisdom, and His love for us. Because right in the midst of all of the darkness and confusion and evil of Good Friday, God is working all things together for good, for those who love Him and trust Him. He is orchestrating all those events according to plan. And according to a plan where he reconciles sinners to himself through the death and the shed blood of his son, Jesus, and he gives them life through the glorious resurrection. The darkness of Good Friday is followed by the light of Resurrection Sunday. And all of the crosses that we bear in this life are followed by a crown of glory. And so we can sing, Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal. But in light of the events of Joseph's life, and even more so in light of the cross and resurrection, we can say that earth has no sorrow that does not have a good, loving, wise, heavenly purpose behind it. And that calls us to heartfelt trust, even when things are hard, because we know that the hand that has allowed a hard providence in our life is the same hand that gave his son for our salvation and to give us life and to welcome us into glory. You know, we often want answers to life's mysteries that confuse us. That's understandable. We want to know why. But you know what we need more than to know that there are good answers? What we need more than to know that there are good answers is to know that there's a good God. And we know that. He's a God God who governs all things by his power, guides all things by his wisdom, And gives his son as a demonstration of the depths of his love for us. That invites us to heartfelt trust in him. And that allows us to move past questions about our lives that we may never be able to answer. To answers about his love that we need never ever question. Let's pray. Great are you Lord. We confess this. We acknowledge that your providence is is often mysterious to us, but Lord, we pray that you would grant us grace to believe in these important truths of your providence. And we pray that we would endure the course of your providence that involves us in significant troubles and that we would respond to these things with heartfelt trust in you because of the love that you've shown us in your son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray, amen.